0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. This is episode 68. It is the second of two parts in which we've been talking about nonviolence. As I shared on the last episode, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a friend about nonviolence, and it got my wheels turning um, about this idea, this practice, this philosophy that I've been learning about, uh, speaking about, and writing about since 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. And I realized I never spent time discussing it with all of you on the podcast. So on part one last week, we began by asking two questions. The first question is, what is nonviolence? And we began there because as we observed, there is no word in the English language for nonviolence. Now today we'll talk about how there actually is a a word in Sanskrit for it. But all we have in the English is the word violence and we place a negative prefix before it. So it says, it's not that, but it does not describe or get at what nonviolence is, which may be one reason why we have such a difficult time imagining it. Because all we're doing is saying, well, it's not that. And when you start by saying, it's not that, or I am not that, you immediately lack creativity. And so this is what we did. We started with, well, what is nonviolence? And then the second question was, Does the Christian tradition have anything to say about nonviolence? And that's where we spent the majority of our time together discovering yes, (laughs) the Christian tradition not only has a lot to say about nonviolence, but it was the dominant teaching among Christians for the first 300 years after Jesus. And so today, we're going to ask two more questions about nonviolence as a way of continuing our conversation together. The first question is related to what I shared at the beginning of the uh, of the last episode, and, and that is this: how often the conversation of nonviolence um, elicits strong and I would say negative, maybe dismissive responses from people. And so, our first question today will will probe that. It, we will ask why does this subject elicit overwhelmingly negative, dismissive, and strong reactions and responses? And the final question, or the second question for today, the final question of the two episodes is, well, what does this matter anyway? In other words, (laughs) who cares? Like, what place does this conversation have in our everyday lives here in 2020, the year that has been? We'll say it that way. So with that said, first question. Why does the subject of nonviolence elicit such strong reactions? Why does it elicit negative, dismissive reactions? Now, in the past, as I mentioned, I received emails from people after speaking about this who are deeply angry, calling me names over email. And this has happened nearly every time I've preached on this. And there's often even been at least one person who approaches me after I'm done preaching, clearly upset. Uh, This has been true with articles or or blogs that I've written about it. For whatever reason, this idea just seems to dig into us. So my question is, why? Why is this? In responding to this question, I want to reflect on the themes that have been woven into the responses and conversations that have come to me after either speaking or writing about it over the years. Now, I mentioned that some people feel or seem dismissive of the idea of nonviolence, and this brings me to far and away the most common response when it comes to nonviolence, and it's this. Nonviolence doesn't work. That's it. Nonviolence doesn't work. It, it, it's an emphatic statement that I have heard dozens and dozens of times, and it assumes this idea is just naive or and stupid, and therefore it's easily dismissed. In other words, if it worked so well, it would be far more popular than it is. But today we know this is an idea that's rather obscure in something that just kind of hangs out in the margins. Now, when somebody says nonviolence doesn't work, it's quickly followed by one of two scenarios. And I've heard these two scenarios over and over again. The first one is this. If someone had a knife to your wife's throat or if someone had a knife to one of your kids' throats, and the only way you could save them was to kill the person holding the knife, what would you do? Now, besides the fact that this is an extremely specific scenario in which the choice is very binary, like you're going to do something violent or you're not, um, one that, like, if, if this ever happened, it's exceedingly rare which I point that out at the beginning because this is one of the most common scenarios people paint for me. And yet I I wonder how many people alive right now have been (laughs) faced with the scenario of, yeah, somebody had a knife to my wife's throat and um, I had a choice to use violence or not use violence. The only way I could save them was to kill them, not disarm them, kill them. So this is a very specific scenario and we need to keep that in mind. But even though it's exceedingly rare, the, the idea or the chances of this happening, I always indulge the question head on. When, when somebody poses this question to me, if someone had a knife to your wife's throat and the only way you could stop them is killing him, I always say, if the only way I could stop someone from killing my wife or one of my kids was to kill them, I would take them out in a second. And, because I'm not done with my reply, and if you want to support or argue against an ethical teaching based off my actions, then you're going to end up in a really bad place. Because what you're saying is, I know you are right now advocating nonviolence, but if you don't practice nonviolence in every situation, it therefore voids the the support, it therefore voids the power of this teaching. And so I always say, well, If you're going to measure the power of a teaching or the truth of an ethical argument based off the way I live my life, you're going to be disappointed. And you've actually put me in a very unhealthy place in your own head. See, the only thing this argument really does show is that I, in a very detailed and specific hypothetical scenario that's exceedingly rare, that I would go against my professed beliefs to save my family. That's all that argument does. It does not make the teachings of nonviolence void. It does not make the teachings of nonviolence not true. And it does not prove that nonviolence does not work. I'm responding to the scenario. Because the question is, I either let my wife die or I I make sure this other guy dies. Somebody has to die. That's what I'm responding to, not to the reality of the power of, the beauty of nonviolence. So the other scenario that's often brought up to me after, hey, it doesn't work, is, well, what about Hitler? Okay, let's talk about Hitler. Are we talking about Hitler in 1933 or are we talking about Hitler in 1944? Because there is a difference. Hitler in 1933 had spent years at that point kind of stoking the fires of what's now called the Jewish question, basically saying the Jews are the problem here. Hitler in 1944, this is in the throes of World War II when at this point now they have concentration camps and they're carrying out this mass horrific genocide called the Holocaust against the Jewish people. So there's a difference between Hitler in 1933 and Hitler in 1944. And keep in mind, there were some and unfortunately it would be inaccurate to say many, but there were some specifically from the church who opposed the Nazi vision and philosophy, and they rejected the Jewish question from the beginning. However, what we know from history is that the the, the masses of Christians actually went along with the Nazi vision of the Aryan paragraph, which basically excluded uh, Jewish people from any kind of life in society and in religion, and the the church, on the whole, supported the Jewish question. And so, again, when we talk about Hitler in 1933, let's not forget, there were years in which the the religious leadership, the Christian leadership, could have opposed him uh, in the late 20s into the 30s by 1933. But in those who did, they formed what's called, history calls it, the Confessing Church, And the Confessing Church in Germany stood in opposition to the German Evangelical Church, which was basically the consolidation of churches by the Nazis. Some call it the Nazification of the German Evangelical Church. Now, as much as the Confessing Church spoke out and spoke up, the majority of Christians refused to join them. Now, consider this. We can immediately say, oh, those are all bad people but I wanna ask some piercing questions here. How many people in the German evangelical church said things like, well, I I just, I'm not gonna get political here. When it came to the Jewish question in the Aryan paragraph, I'm just not going to get political here because this was something formed by political minds. Now keep in mind, the Holocaust had not begun. Keep in mind that World War II had not begun. Hitler's main message, was how World War I had decimated Germany and how the uh, treaty at Versailles was was kind of structured against the German people and how they needed to recapture the beauty and the strength of Germany. And he had a scapegoat, and the scapegoat was the Jewish people. How many Christians went along with that by saying something like, well, I just don't want to get political? You see, it's not like all of these Christians were foaming at the mouth anti-Jewish in their sentiment. But what they did is they sat back. They refused to use the power that they had and allowed this thing to gain a full head of steam. But this is not true of all Christians. Some did speak up and speak out, even though most Christians refused to join them and instead enjoyed the luxury of sleeping in their own comfort. But even though there was a small number of Christians speaking up and out, they continued to do it. One woman's name was Marga Musel. She advocated not just for people of Jewish descent in the churches. She actually argued for all Jewish people to be included in the life of the, uh, of the German culture. Now, the other uh, more well-known man or well-known person was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He went to the ecumenical World Alliance Gathering. And there he spoke openly against the Jewish question and how the church, he spoke against about how the church reserved membership only for members of the Aryan race and how they excluded non-Aryans, especially Jews. And at that gathering, Bonhoeffer led the council to condemn the Nazi actions against the Jews. And Bonhoeffer, by the way, this is in 19, I think it's 33 or 34. He brought the resolution of condemnation and the leaders of the German Evangelical Church, this is the one that was slowly taken over by the Nazis, they got angry with him and they demanded he withdraw from ecumenical activities. All of this happened, Marga Musel in Bonhoeffer before 1935. So keep in mind, it's not like these people were hiding out in secret. They were outspoken. They were saying together, if we rise up as the people of God, we can oppose these harmful uh, insidious racist policies against non Aryans. But the, the church at large, they seem to be interested in power. They seem to be uh, not interested in getting political. And I wonder what would have happened if the Germans and Ger- Christians in Germany, rather than support the authoritarian vision of a madman like Adolf Hitler, what if they had stood together supporting the vulnerable and standing against the oppression of the Nazis? You see, I point this out because that's a that's a large percentage of the population of Germany in the early 1930s. What if they had stood against him? So back to the question, what about Hitler? I ask, well, what about the church? What about the church and her failure? What about the church and her ignoring the reality of what was beginning to happen in their own country? To argue against Hitler in 1944 is actually to ignore the failure of the church in Germany. And yes, I will say it that strongly. Now, beyond that, using that argument of what about Hitler? Well, if we're talking about Hitler in 1944, that, that, that's like arguing, according to one nonviolent activist, that's like trying to teach a pregnant woman breathing exercises during labor. In other words, that ship has sailed, but there's always a season before the violence. There's always a time in which somebody is rising to power. And as the old adage goes, all that it takes for injustice to prevail are for good people to do and to say nothing. And I'll tell you what, if we look at the history of Western civilization and all of the evil that has been done, so often the church is guilty of going along with those in power. And the worst part is, it's often those in power that use the name of Jesus and the Christian religion to make excuses for why they should be violent, why they should exclude, why they should perform genocide. So again, what about Hitler? Okay, what about the failure of the church? More than that, if somebody says, well, you know, nonviolence doesn't work, okay. But what about the examples that have proven to work? Like, what do we do about Gandhi? Gandhi stood against the British empire that had colonized his country, that abused its land and and stole their resources. And he actually is the one who created the Sanskrit word for nonviolence. He calls it satyagraha, satyagraha, which means truth force. (laughs) That's his word for nonviolence, truth force. And it's what he employed at the social level and it led to forcing an end to the British domination in India. If you've ever seen pictures of Gandhi, the guy's always wearing what looks like a bed sheet, and his ribs are always protruding. He's always got a little smile on his mouth, like kind of like the Buddha does, if you've ever seen pictures of the Buddha. Uh, that, and there's this sense in which you wonder, how how can this guy oppose the military of an entire empire, and he would say, truth force. And it was his nonviolence that brought an end to British domination. It was his nonviolence actually that greatly influenced uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He studied Gandhi, and he adopted his phrase truth force, but for him it became the phrase soul force. And he talked about how nonviolence was actually love and uh, love in action. And as a leader in the civil rights movement, he led nonviolently and he moved the needle toward greater justice and equality in his day. Now, recognizing we still have a long way to go to see the full vision of Dr. King realized. But for him, he he led nonviolently. Uh, as recent as the late 1980s, when all of the Eastern Bloc countries, when, when the communist regimes there were being deposed, uh, one of those regimes was in Czechoslovakia and the communist government in Czechoslovakia was deposed nonviolently. It was called the Velvet Revolution, and it was in the late 1980s. The Velvet Revolution was a bloodless, nonviolent revolution that led to the overthrow of the oppressive communist government there. Now, remember, we said last week, nonviolence is practice. It's the subversive, practice where you shift the power balance. It's a subversive practice where you expose the evil. It's not doing nothing. It's actually doing something without using violent means. So hear those words. It was a nonviolent revolution that led to the overthrow of the oppressive and communist government in Czechoslovakia. They did this without firing a shot. Now, by the way, there are many more examples from history uh, of of nonviolence working. So to make the blanket statement, well, it doesn't work. That's actually not true. You can buy a wonderful book. It's called Nonviolence by Mark Kurlansky. And he has example after example after example of times in history where nonviolence is proven to work. When we say it doesn't work, all that reflects is that we're not students of history. Or maybe it is that we are students of history. It's just that the history books that we've been given, particularly here in the United States, Those history books don't recount these stories. And why would they? Especially here in the U.S. Because here in the U.S., we glorify and we celebrate the military. In the United States, violence is baked into our culture. Violence is normal. Violence is the way that we deal with the bad guys. Consider every, well, not every, but most movies that we watch where there's uh, kind of a violent plot. What happens to the, quote, bad guy at the end of the movie? They always kill them. This is like the way we deal with it. It's, it's such, it lacks such creativity. But this is what we do. It's been said that if, by the age of 18, if you watch a normal amount of television, which is way too much, you will have seen over 200,000 violent acts portrayed on television. So for us, why would we ever take time to learn about nonviolence? This doesn't comport with our culture and what we glorify and celebrate. So, to speak up and uphold nonviolence in our textbooks and our history books, it would actually go, it would not serve our interests here in the United States. It would go against them, it would work against our beliefs. And this commitment to and celebration of violence, this commitment to and celebration of the military, speaks toward another reason that we have such strong responses. And I say that because so much of our faith, so much of our Christian tradition is wrapped and cloaked in the flag of the United States. It is not found in an embrace of the cross. Now, here's what I mean by that. I just mentioned Mark Kurlansky in his wonderful book titled Nonviolence, and he says this, quote, one of history's greatest lessons is that once the state embraces a religion, the nature of that religion changes radically. It loses its nonviolent component and becomes a force for war rather than peace. end quote. Let me say that again. One of history's greatest lessons is that once the state embraces a religion, the nature of that religion changes radically. It loses its nonviolent component and becomes a force for war rather than peace. Now keep in mind, as we said at the top of this episode, and as we said last week, for the first 300 years of Christianity, the first 300 years of that tradition, non-violence was embraced. Non-violence was actually common. As a matter of fact, Ron Sider argues that there is no text in the first 300 years of Christianity that we can find that supports any kind of violence and or military engagement. Obviously, something has changed. And the thing that has changed. There are two records actually that tell about this, is that in the early is the early fourth century battle of the Milvian Bridge. Now this battle was a showdown between Constantine and Maxentius for control of the Roman Empire. Maxentius was uh, not uncommon in his day. He was known to believe in the dark arts and magic and spells and uh, because of this, it was credited that he was a very strong military man, and this battle at Milvian Bridge was, whoever won it, they're basically the one who's in charge of the entire empire, and so Constantine was convinced he needed a power uh, beyond him if he was to be victorious against Maxentius, And, and Constantine did worship a god, but, you know, Maxentius had these dark arts and spells and everything else, and so... While Constantine worshipped the god Sol Invictus, he claimed, um, upon saying he needed more power, that he had a vision of a cross in the sky, and he saw the words next to the cross, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. So he put the symbol of the cross on the shields of his soldiers, and, as it's told, he ended up winning the battle the Milvian Bridge and took control of the empire. Now, this is what's really interesting. Christianity at that point was still a subversive, marginalized, oppressed, and persecuted group of people. Um, And it did not immediately become the dominant religion of the empire, but Constantine did insist the victory that he had at the Battle of Milvian Bridge was because of the Christian God. And so this was the beginning of tolerance toward Christians. And by the way, this battle Was the beginning of and the first time the cross was ever used as the central symbol of Christianity. So, when people talk about like uh, the cross as a symbol of Christianity, well, that was introduced in (laughs) in a battle by Constantine. the The dominant symbols of Christianity up until that point were that of an anchor and a fish, because really it came from the shores of the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of fishermen. But now. The central symbol of Christianity was introduced by a Roman Empire, Roman Emperor named Constantine. And it began with the Roman military. And the cross was a symbol of violence. It was first used as a symbol to ensure victory in battle. And this is what began to slowly change the practice and the belief in nonviolence for Christians. In a somewhat short time, Christianity went from being tolerated in the empire to the central religion of the Roman Empire. So it was once an obscure, marginal, nonviolent movement that had its roots in the province of Judah, which was in a distant corner of the empire. This soon became the religion of the empire. Now the question's been asked, how did Christianity get so popular that in just a few hundred years that Constantine would have had knowledge of what it is? Well, because they practiced nonviolence, and they practiced enemy love, and they practiced care for the poor. We even have historians that say to the emperors, hey, listen, the Christians care for their poor and your poor also. So this is what led to the growth of Christianity. It was all underground. It was all on the margins. It was all in the difficult and hard places. But once it became the religion of the empire, once Rome adopted it, it, it pretty quickly led to the church forsaking its tradition of nonviolence. In time, the church, which had prohibited war, created rules saying that any conscientious objector, anyone who refused to fight, even if they claimed that they did so based on the tradition of the church in nonviolence, the church said, if you do that, you will be excommunicated from the church. So think about this. The church went from nonviolent for 300 years, and within 100 years, they began saying, if you refuse to fight for the Roman military, we will excommunicate you. This is how quickly it changed. Now, this threat of excommunication did not stop everyone. Many Christians still refused military service, and and this argument over nonviolence actually led to rifts and division in the church. So keep in mind the question we're asking here. Why does this elicit such strong and negative responses? This is not new, it's thousands of years old. And when Rome took over the church and adopted it as their main religion, this conversation around nonviolence 1,400 years, 1,700 years ago um, was leading to rifts and division in the church. Now, as you know, the empire won and impressed on people its vision and its vision of every empire included violence which means Christianity lost its nonviolent teachings that were foundational to it. More than that, as a religion, Christianity became, and still is in many places, an apologist for war. The the, the greatest, uh, or most popular theory, or maybe I should say not the greatest, but the worst, but the greatest example of this is St. Augustine's just war theory, which, by the way, I still have people bring that up. Well, what about just war theory? And this is offered as an explanation for when a war, or we should say this, when state sponsored violence is legitimate according to the Christian faith and the Bible. And like I said, his ideas are still embraced by many today, which means we have yet to recover our original, early, nonviolent teachings taught in both the words and deeds of Jesus and his early followers. As Christians, we are far more identified with the empire. We are children of the empire, much more so, I would contend, in this particular um, context than we are of Jesus. Not only that, but the empire also alters stories for us so that we continue uh, to miss the power of nonviolence. Because to the victor not only goes the spoils, but the ability to tell the story. And so the empire has told and retold stories and basically blotted out any clear teachings of nonviolence as a way of keeping us in a place of only imagining violent responses. And one example of this is St. Martin. Now, I mentioned St. Martin last week. His full name, as he's known, is St. Martin of Tours. And I said that we would revisit his story this week. Now, Martin, because of his commitment to Jesus, which included, for the early Christians, nonviolence became a conscientious objector and was branded a coward by the Roman military. Now, Martin was a part of the Roman military after Rome had adopted the Christianity as its main religion, but he became aware of the nonviolent teachings. And so he, a part of his story was that as a soldier, he saw a beggar on the side of the road who was freezing. And so he cut his military robe in half with his sword, and he gave one half to the beggar on the side of the road. Now, what's interesting is that today, what we remember is him caring for the beggar, and we should, but what we don't talk about so much is his story of conscientious objection, his story of refusing to fight, and this is how his story has been told, especially by the military here in the United States, because in the United States, there is now the Order of St. Martin, and it's something that's given or designated to military personnel, Now, if you read his story, there's nothing of his refusal to fight. There's nothing of his famous quote where he says, I am a soldier of Christ, I cannot fight. His commitment to nonviolence is no longer told because, of course, it wouldn't fit their purpose. So today, known as St. Martin of Tours, his official feast day is on the anniversary of his death, which is supposedly November 11 in the year 397, which is the same date of the armistice ending World War I and the same date as Veterans Day in the United States. We, we've taken the story of St. Martin and we have pulled nonviolence completely out of it. When I researched this and learned about this years ago, I actually, <laughs> I called uh, the quartermasters of the United States Army, which is this the group that designates the order of St. Martin. And I worked my way up the chain to an individual who oversees a pretty good chunk of it. And I asked him about St. Martin. And I said, can you tell me what you know about St. Martin. And he told this beautiful story of St. Martin and the beggar and the robe. And I said, well, what do you do with the fact that St. Martin said, I'm a soldier of Christ, therefore I cannot fight? What do you do with the fact that he refused to participate in the military? And it was quiet and he said, where are you getting this information? Because we have so removed the story of nonviolence for the sake of the empire that we don't even know the story. The, the person who oversees this doesn't even know the story. We've, we put his feast day, the date of his death, in conjunction with Veterans Day. It, it's amazing how we have bent it toward our purposes, which is so often what the empire does. The empire reframes stories, including the stories of Christians who were committed to nonviolence, because we don't know what to do with rebels. We don't know what to do with people who misbehave. We don't know what to do with people who are subversive and go against the, 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 the values of the empire. But if we can make them a saint, now they have a thousand uses. So what, what happens when you bake not only the idea of nonviolence, but the defense of it into your life, in your politics, in your religion, in your theology for almost 2,000 years? What happens when you blur the lines and in some case wed the empire to the kingdom of heaven? Well, you get something like Rome, which is to say, you get the United States because we are something like Rome. See, every church that I went to as a kid had an American flag placed prominently on stage. The churches that I went to growing up on Memorial Day and the 4th of July and Veterans Day, there was like a whole song and dance, well, not dance, but there was a whole um, musical gig celebrating the empire celebrating the United States. I was in a service once, and they had service people march down the aisle, like guns in hand and the whole thing, as people cheered and celebrated. And they had this huge American flag, I'm talking like 35 feet wide, lower from the ceiling, as these people marched down on Veterans Day. And it was... It was this moment of disbelief for me. And by this time, I was in my 20s. And I remembered thinking, like, something here doesn't fit. Like, what what is it that we're doing? Now, it's one thing to respect people in the military. It's one thing to honor people in the military. But to bring the military and the flag front and center into a worship service? I mean, it doesn't take much to begin asking the question, who exactly are we worshiping here? Who exactly are we celebrating? Because I, it's really hard for me to imagine a peasant rabbi who had clear nonviolent teachings standing and applauding this thing. Is that who we're worshiping? Is that who we're celebrating? Or are we celebrating an empire who controls and legislates their vision of peace through violence? And that particular question is one that we need to ask. And I, I recognize this question upsets many people which just may be what lies beneath much of the anger and strong responses with this idea of nonviolence, because ultimately, this is a conversation about religion and politics. And of course, (laughs) religion and politics never upset anybody, right? But I say it's a conversation about religion and politics, or maybe I should say it's a conversation about the Christian tradition and the empire, because we have wed these together for centuries. And in this country, we have continued to insist that somehow these two things go together. And so when we ask the question about nonviolence, we're poking into both of those things, religion and politics. And if we're really honest, it does not take much observation to recognize that the church in the United States of America is often far more influenced by the vision of the United States, the empire, the global military superpower that we are, than it is by the heart and life of a peasant rabbi from the far reaches in the margins of an empire. But we need, and so we need to consider, what does our faith resemble more? And by the way, I'm preaching at myself here. Don't hear me saying like, oh, I'm completely off the hook. No, we swim in this water nonstop. We breathe the air of empire. And in this case, when it comes to the prevailing belief about violence and nonviolence, what does the church resemble more? the values of the global military superpower that we call the United States, or do our values look more like those of Jesus and his followers in the early church for the first 300 years? Uh I mean, most of us will recognize who we look more like, but we defend the use of violence still insisting at times it is necessary, which points toward the belief that we think violence can actually bring peace. Now, If that were true, with all the violence in the history of the earth, with all the violence humans have participated in, don't you think we'd probably have peace by now? I mean, more than that, just consider what happens when one nation bombs another nation. The nation who gets bombed doesn't say, oh, hey, thanks for doing that. It's woken us up to some of the values that we're holding that seem to be oppressive with regard to our geopolitical alliances and relationships across the globe. No, When one nation bombs another, there is retaliation, there is revenge, and this has been the case as long as there have been nations. You see, we believe if we can just get rid of the bad guys, we will have peace. The problem is, those who we believe to be the bad guys believe us to be the bad guys. And so when you bomb, shoot, kill the bad guys, the bad guys— have brothers and fathers and sisters and mothers and friends who say, look what the bad guys did to our brothers and our sisters. And it just escalates and escalates and escalates. This is, as Walter Wink says, this is the myth of redemptive violence. I mean, even a simple observation shows violence brings retaliation. And with each successive retaliation, there is an escalation in violence, not a reduction of it. Regardless, most people who I know who are a part of the Christian tradition, while not explicitly endorsing violence, at least accept it as something that is just a part of life, and maybe maybe it's a necessary part of life. Maybe violence is just the way it is. And Walter Wink says this, quote, The belief that violence saves is so successful because it doesn't seem to be mythic in the least. Violence simply appears to be the nature of things. It's what works. It seems inevitable, the last and often the first resort in conflicts. If a God is what you turn to when all else fails, violence certainly functions as a God. What people overlook then is the religious character of violence. It demands from its devotees an absolute obedience unto death. (laughs) That... That will preach, I think. You see, so often we accept violence, the stories told by the empire, and perhaps most importantly, we accept how those things benefit us. And as we consider why people have such strong reactions, it may be due to the fact that nonviolence may require something of us. It might require something of me and might require something of you. Now, again, we're not talking about pacifism, we're talking about uh, nonviolent resistance, subversive behavior. Now, remember, when we speak about the Bible in the Christian tradition, when we think about this idea of it costing us something, most of us listening, at least those of you listening to this podcast, I'm gonna assume almost all of you, uh, we do so as citizens of the United States. Or we do so as citizens, I know there's some in Australia that listen, and I don't know, UK. <laughs> we, we do so as citizens of the empire, I'll say it that way, which means when we read the Bible, we're reading the Bible as the Romans. We are reading the Bible as the superpower that occupied Judea and oppressed the Jewish people, including Jesus. When we come to the Bible, we read it as the Egyptians, as the Assyrians, as the Babylonians, as the Persians. We are the country exerting its military strength and flexing its muscle around the world, which is what all of these empires that we read about in the Bible did. And we do this to promote the American vision and the American way of life, which is the same reason these other empires flex their military muscle. And I point this out because every superpower, every empire in the history of civilization got to that place by using violence. No military superpower or empire um, got to their place of global dominance because they were telling a really good story. They did it through violence. They intimidated others, they conquered others, and it's always been this way. And here is why wrapping our head around nonviolence can be so difficult. Because historically, the practice of nonviolence does not come from those places of power. Egypt and the Assyrians and Babylon and Persia and Rome did not teach nonviolence. The United States does not teach nonviolence as a practice. Because the practice of nonviolence does not come from places of power. Because people and nations and places of power, they've gotten there by force. What the history of nonviolence teaches us is that every great nonviolent action, every movement propelled forward by nonviolence did not start in places of power. Rather, it came from the margins. It came from the bottom. Nonviolence was and is a tool for the powerless. I mean, keep in mind, the early Christians and Jesus himself were not in places of power in the Roman Empire. They were persecuted, they were abused, and they were the victims of state-sponsored violence. And when there is not access to power or access to weapons, when you have the boot of oppression on your necks, this is what historically gives birth to nonviolence. And we have seen this over and over again. Now, I point this out because it's hard to imagine nonviolence from where most of us are. We stand at the top. We are privileged. And we just keep using what got us here almost without thinking, which is violence. And while we may not be participants in violence, we certainly, I certainly, and more than willing to receive the benefits of violence, which is what got us here. Revenge, self-defense, retaliation, they're very normal for us. And in many cases, we we rationalize why those things might be necessary. It seems the narrative of an earthly militarized empire has captured the Christian imagination in the United States. We enjoy the benefits of an empire in a way that's far different than the early Christians who were constantly persecuted. Like the Roman citizens, we have way too much to lose to go quietly. Maybe this is really what's at the bottom. Maybe that's why nonviolence is so threatening. Because something in us knows that it asks us to be willing to give up give up everything. Or at least give up a lot. Maybe it asks us to be willing to give up our wealth, our power, our possessions, our influence, all the things that lend us a sense of self-worth and security and certainty. It asks us to be weak. Maybe that's why we have such strong reactions toward the idea of nonviolence. We're scared of losing what we've worked so hard to get. Perhaps this is why there's often a dismissal, an assumption of naivete by so many. And maybe the strong responses come because we don't want to come to grips with the violence we participate in and benefit from and support. Now, of course, we could talk about this for a much longer time, but I want to move to the final question. The second question today, who cares? <laughs> like, what does it matter anyway? Why talk about nonviolence at all? And in response to that, I want to uh, conclude these two parts by just observing the world we live in in this present moment. It seems there's an ongoing argument right now, uh, lots of yelling, anger, and we've seen some violence, uh, both from the right and the left, thankfully not as much that has, as has been predicted or has been feared, um, And as we see the rhetoric get more extreme, keep in mind, violence is waiting in the wings. One of the theories of communication is that as rhetoric gets gets more and more and more vitriolic, more and more hate-filled, more and more anger, it has a limit. And once you reach that limit, physical violence is waiting in the wings. So as we consider how or why this talk about nonviolence matters, here's some concluding thoughts. Our understanding of strength and weakness is defined by our culture. Our understanding of strength and weakness is defined by the empire. And as we have seen in our world and in our country, might makes right. The one who's often justified at the end of a debate or an argument or a battle is the one who's able to silence their opponent, often by any means necessary. It's common today to see people slandering others with whom they disagree. And they, and we, often never give it a second thought. We make those who think differently than us out to be idiots and tell ourselves that we are right and go to our little group that already agrees with us to have them tell us that we are right. Hostile rhetoric is is considered strong. It's, It's widely accepted. And it's implemented and supported by those who self-identify as Christians. And by the way, I'm gonna keep saying this over and over. This is happening on all sides. This hostile, hate-filled rhetoric. Those who have the, quote, courage to take action, dash another to pieces, or to stand up for themselves, they are thought to be strong. And in all of this, I, I see this all the time, we insist on dragging Jesus into it. So many times I hear people reference the time when Jesus drove money changers out of the temple with whips, and and like we imagine that Jesus powered up and opened up a can of whoop-ass, and we fancy him to be like us, you know, like strong. But I'm not sure this is the best picture of Jesus, and I'm not sure that that moment in the temple is the best example. I actually think according to our standards of measurement in this country, when it comes to conflict, we would think that Jesus was weak and why people want to talk about him in the temple, it might be helpful to remember what happened right before he turned over those tables in the temple. Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day on a donkey. Now, a donkey was an animal of peace, which was in contrast to a horse that was an animal of war. Kings rode horses, generals rode horses, war heroes rode horses. Jesus rode a donkey. Luke, in his gospel, wrote that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He wept. Jesus' sorrow for those who were about to kill him was too much. Jesus' sorrow for those who wouldn't receive him was too much. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey brokenhearted because he longed for the salvation, the liberation, the peace, and the healing of those who intended to do him harm. But it was too late. This was... The condition, the sorrow-laden heart of Jesus that went into the temple. Was he angry? Yes, he w- of course he was. But his anger clearly came out of a broken heart. So when we view, G- view Jesus as an angry cuss who opened up a can against a bunch of crooks, we may be seeing something that's not there, and we may be doing that to justify our own anger. Because there was never an ounce of anger or ego in the anger of Jesus. Jesus operated out of a broken heart filled with love, not a heart filled with violence. And what we often mistake as strength in our world is nothing more than weakness. That was never in the heart of Jesus, and it's never in the heart of God. Throughout the Bible, we learn of a God who is heartbroken over the plight of humans. Which, of course, raises the question, what kind of cosmic deity would ever let his heart be broken by mere mortals? That sounds weak. A deity who's actually heartbroken? Because in the ancient world, deities were fierce and powerful and they didn't tolerate the whims of mortals, but not this one. God grieved in his heart for humanity. And it's this cosmic deity that came and lived among us in the person of Jesus, the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus was punched, mocked, falsely accused, spit on, beaten, and slandered after living an entire life where he was oppressed by the religiously powerful and the religiously elite, after living a life where he and his people were oppressed by the global military superpower known as Rome, and in all of this, he never opened his mouth. Jesus was nailed to a Roman instrument of execution and taunted. Those who hated him said, What's wrong, Jesus? Can't you come down from that cross? What they're really saying is, hey, Jesus, aren't, aren't you strong enough? And the answer is, of course, yes, he was strong enough. Strong enough to stay on that damn stake that was a curse to humanity. Strong enough to look at those who were beating him with a whip and love them. Strong enough not to hit back. Strong enough not to return an insult. Strong enough to say as he neared his death, hey, dad, forgive those who are doing this to me because they don't get what they are doing. If Jesus had called an army of angels, as it's been said, and crushed the Romans and defeated those who were corrupt and oppressive, he would have simply played the same tired game humanity has played since the dawn of time that says violence and power and might, that's what wins because that is what is strong. It's not strong. And thankfully, Jesus didn't play that game because he knew that that is nothing but weakness. It is cowardice cloaked in violence. Jesus took an instrument of violence and power, the cross, and he suffered on it in total nakedness, in weakness, and in doing so, put on display for any who will gaze long enough to see it. This is what true strength is. This is why Paul said on the cross that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. People in Rome, by the way, they would have laughed at that sentence. They would have thought Paul was out of his mind to think that any victim of crucifixion triumphed. They didn't triumph, Paul. They died. And in the mind of the Romans, the cross showed the power of the Roman Empire. It was a symbol of their political and military strength. Yet Jesus bled and died on a cross. And in doing so, he triumphed. This is the real victory. And here's why I say that. If the cross was the greatest weapon of Rome and Jesus defeated it, then what power do they have left? If you unleash the full power of your violence on somebody and somehow they get up and say to you, is that all you got? What are you going to do then? You are rendered powerless. You see, what looked like weakness for those who are abusing Jesus, well, that's really actually strength. And this is the upside-down nature of true power in the kingdom of heaven. You see, what I'm learning and failing at (laughs) is that it takes real strength to swallow your ego and not return an insult. It, It takes deep, deep strength to bless those who persecute you. It takes tremendous power to love your enemies and pray for them. It takes supernatural might to forgive those who have wounded you. And in the context of the kingdom of heaven, what is weak is actually strong. So what does all this matter? What does this whole two-part thing about nonviolence matter? Well, because we need this kind of thinking right now in our world today. I've seen several people, both my left-leaning friends who I adore and my right-leaning friends, who dismiss this kind of thinking for the sake of their agenda, for the sake of what they want to see happen in our world. I've seen my left-leaning and right-leaning friends say to me with anger, you don't know what it's like to be me, and you're right, I don't. I'll never understand, and I'm learning to understand (laughs) that I'll never understand. Uh, I've had people on both the right and left who clearly and openly jettison the words in the heart of Jesus that insinuates anything nonviolence. I've heard people on the right and left acknowledge they will never forgive, that they are willing to get ugly, who've dismissed teaching about turning the other cheek, who admit to refusing to pray for their enemies. I mean, we have lost the plot. Now keep in mind, nonviolence is not letting people off the hook. We need to name the evil when we see it, but we are not to imitate it, lest we become like them. This is about bringing the evil and the deeds of others in all of our unfiltered rage before God. Look at the Psalms when they say things like smash their teeth, journal about it, scream it out, be brutal in your honesty, but then leave it there. Don't bring it out for everybody to see on social media bring it before the divine mystery and allow your desire for vengeance to be exhausted so that eventually it runs out of steam and dies. And when this happens, the miracle of love actually has the power to be born within us. Now, there are many, I understand, who resist this, who don't want to do this, but it's the kind of living that ultimately serves to liberate us from violence and ultimately liberates us from the power others have over us. Imagine if someone comes at you with anger and violence and you respond with genuine love. I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, initially, they'll probably escalate because they just might see that they can no longer control you. They've lost power over you. Maybe this is why Jesus said to pray and bless and love our enemies. It's not just for their sake, but it's for our sake. Because in this, we will find that we are liberated. When this happens, we can become those through whom healing, wholeness, and restoration occurs. Years ago, I was sitting with my therapist, sharing about someone who had caused me deep, deep pain over the course of my life up to that point. And he said, I'm going to encourage you every single day to pray for God's peace and grace to rest on this person. And I was like, I'm going to ask you never to say that again. <laughs> I was like, are you crazy? Do you not know, you know, what this person has done? And I I said, hang on a second. Like, I want to know what I can say to this person to tell them how deeply they've wounded me. And he said, when you've truly forgiven this person, you won't need to say anything. Oh, so I did. Um, I would pray things like, hey, God, <laughs> that's how I start my prayers. Hey God, what's, what's up? Um, hey, I don't really mean this, but I pray for your shalom, your peace, your wholeness, your healing to rest over and on this person today. Um, and again, in case you didn't hear the first part, don't really mean it, but just thought I'd say it. And I went on like this for some time, but day after day after day, I prayed shalom, peace, wholeness, healing, rest on this person. And I'll never forget the day where I prayed it And I didn't start by saying I don't mean this, and I didn't finish by saying I didn't mean it. I actually prayed it, and something in me meant it. Something in me, I was like, I think I actually meant that. And there was this, almost this physical feeling in my chest of something breaking open. And it was like this liberation I had where I realized this person no longer holds power over me. I and liberated. And he was right in that moment of liberation, in that moment of forgiveness, which took, by the way, months and months and months to get to. And then months and months and months after that to really live into it. But in that moment, there was a sense of, oh my gosh, he's right. I don't have to say anything to that person anymore. This is something, by the way, I'm still learning because there's other people who hurt me. There's other people who let me down. But this kind of Living, this is something deeply needed today. A willingness to live like this, to love like this, to be seen as weak when you're actually strong. To have the courage and conviction to embrace nonviolence, not only in our actions, but in our speech. It's needed today because it's exceedingly rare to find people who are committed to this. So we should not be surprised when we see the ugliness and the division and the hate Because when there's a group of people whose imaginations are embedded in the values of the empire, violence and speech and action will be found among them. And so may you, my brothers and my sisters, may you, my siblings, be those who show the strength found in weakness. May you be those who put love on display because love is the engine of nonviolence. And may you do this so that you may discover the liberation found in this kind of life. And in discovering this liberation, become those who serve to liberate others. And with that, we come to the end of part two in our discussion of nonviolence. We will be back next week with my friend Scott the Painter, also known as Scott Erickson, to talk about his latest book titled Honest Advent. I'm telling you, order it now. You will not be disappointed. It's a 25-day guide through Advent. And Scott will be on next week to share with us about his creation of that work. But until then, my friends, as always, much love and peace be with you.